for me to be a good leader, I need to be empathic and I need to be humble and I need to understand myself because unless I understand myself, I can't really help anybody else. And leadership at the end is helping people to achieve the aims that you want to do. Welcome to the Frontline to Boardroom podcast, where we share the wisdom, knowledge and experience of leaders who've served in the military and then taken those hard-won leadership lessons into the corporate world. Hi, I'm your host, Martin Brooker. Looking forward to sharing with you the stories of their lived experiences, warts and all, from leading men and women in harm's way, all the way to the corporate boardroom and beyond. Let's get started. Our guest today is Dennis Franklin, whose professional experience spans the scientific, military and business arenas. Serving the Royal Australian Navy for 10 years as a logistics officer, Dennis transferred to the reserves to continue service in the areas of naval intelligence, IT system and business relationships. What's more interesting is actually his role and growth of a career around geology and IT and business development. He developed a unique ability to join the dots between the innovative and the analytical, from digging up dinosaurs in central Queensland and the mud in Antarctica, to lead an operational intelligence team in the Navy and lead a large global industry-based sales and strategy team for a Fortune 500 company. Dennis can draw on his experience to find insight into whatever makes things tick. I loved our conversation about how leaders remain curious while not jumping in to solve every problem. In fact, a scientific approach to leadership. Let's jump right in. Dennis Franklin, welcome to the Frontline to Boardroom podcast. Great to have you on the show. Well, thanks very much. It's going to be, I'm sure, very exciting and a great pleasure. Awesome. Uh, Dennis, the question I always ask my guests is, how did you end up joining the military, or in your case, the uh, Royal Australian Navy? By accident. My father had served in the war, the Second World War, and so there was always a bit of that, and my grandfather in the First World War, and there was always a bit of that going on in background. And I'd been in uh, the Army Cadets and in the Army Reserve before I joined the Navy. So I went to, um, I went up to the recruiting centre and uh, was standing there waiting for someone to talk to me and a tall, a very tall, fit-looking bloke in white shorts and a white shirt came out and asked if I, he could be of any help. I said, yes, I really want to sort of look at going to Portsea to become an officer in the Army. And he says, ah, have you ever thought about the Navy? And I said, well, yeah, I'd love to. Have, I would have loved to. But my father tried to join the Navy in the Second World War and his glasses precluded it. So I didn't think I was an option for me. And he said, come with me, son. And six weeks later, I was marching out onto the quarter deck at HMAS Creswell. It was as quick as that. Yeah, right. And you were there, Martin. Yes, right, I was. <laughs> No time to have a, um, a second thought about it, obviously. Well, so, you know, like I said, I had plenty of military, if you like, adjacency with the reserves and the yeah. army at Queensland University yeah. Regiment. And so, yeah, I kind of was always either going to be the Navy or science. And I've ended yeah. up doing both. So there you go. Yeah. So, Dennis, you joined the Navy from Queensland. In fact, not too far away from where I live right now in the, uh, on the Redcliffe Peninsula. Who were your leadership heroes early in your career or even before you joined the military? So, well, I think the answer really comes to the ones I knew, people I knew in the Navy. Um, mm -hmm. And 
the first person I really got a sense of the challenges of leadership from was the captain of uh, HMAS Torrens when I was serving there as a midshipman, uh, Mike Raymond, mm-hmm. who was quite renowned in those days uh, around the fleet, and he was the senior captain of the fleet at the time. And then when I went to Cerberus immediately after that for some more training, he went as the captain of Cerberus. He was a uh, an interesting guy. Lots of people were really scared of him, but I wasn't. And I guess, uh, I mean, I well, sort of was, you know, I was a midshipman. He was a four-ring captain. But uh, I got him, and I think he was very kind. And not so kind to his lieutenants and heads of the department, but very kind to trainees. So <laughs> that was a good thing. And the other guy I got to know quite a well, and I, you might know him, but some people, interestingly, I mention him in no people don't, is Carl Delart, who was the only, the first reserve admiral since the mm-hmm. war, I think. Yeah. And he was, he was running the cadet organisation for the whole of defence. I became friend, very friendly with him. I met him at a mess dinner after the ransack course that I did and uh, I got to sit at the head table because I was lucky enough to have won that medallion, the Lonsdale medallion at that course. Mm-hmm. So I got to sit at the top table next to him. And, uh, yes, he was great. Um, smart guy. He's a psychologist in the Navy. And he and I have been yeah. still in touch. What were the characteristics of Mike Raymond that got your attention as a junior officer? Yeah, so it's, it's good. It's a good question. And I'm, we're going to be talking about lots of things, I guess, in the, later. But I thought he was very direct and very confident. And, you know, the sort of guy everybody would say that, he was hard to work for, but if they had to go to war, he would be the guy they want to go with. I don't mean I don't know if that means he was courageously foolhardy or what. You might have some more insight into that than I. But, you know, he was just a really engaging character. He taught me how yeah. to play Liar's Dice to my right. cost. <laughs> so, yeah, he was that sort of a fellow. For those that don't know, Liar's Dice is a uh, is a game played with a couple of dices and it's not dissimilar to poker but um, has a few twists and turns to it. It's a drinking game, Martin. That's right. <laughs> I know that. I um, <laughs> it's a drinking game and it's based on deceit. Mm-hmm. He and I would team up as a pair on a game and after I, you got three lives for each before you had to buy a shout, I'd lose two and then he'd go, away and come back after I'd lost the next one and had to pay for the round. So, you know, right. it was devious too. <laughs> yeah, at a number of levels, yeah. yeah. So um, your early career, you uh, pursued a career as a, as a supply officer, now known as a, a maritime logistics officer. Um, what did that involve and uh, where did that take you in your Navy career? Um, you know, counting things is, is, is the answer to that question, money, vegetables, those sorts of things. Uh, it became, obviously, it's much more scientifically done these days. And remembering that I was a junior officer, so didn't get the full exposure to everything. So as I got a, I got my first proper job, I guess, it was as the assistant secretary at fleet headquarters for whoever was the fleet commander at the time. So that was just an administrative job. I moved off to from there to Kunawara as an assistant supply officer was running for a while, was running the um, Darwin Naval Base store room, which the patrol was full patrol boat parts. 
Uh, I went from there then to Canberra, where I did uh, a bit of work in the it was then well it was what is now CIOG, um, but that that organisation didn't exist then, so it was a part of what then became part of CIOG, looking after the computer systems, the supply, the naval computer systems, and then I went to the final job I had really was the as a logis- integrated logistic support manager for the build the ship build which. Who delivered the survey motor launch project? Right. So that Paluma class uh, boats that are up in around the north. Yeah. I had uh, other a couple of other little bits and pieces. There were my training, some of my training in Torrens and Parramatta and Moresby, but uh, yeah. essentially after going ashore, that was it for sea time. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that is the nature of that uh, career path, isn't it? That it's sort of uh, probably more time spent ashore than, um, you know, there's probably two or three postings at sea and then your career is definitely ashore. That's it. What were those moments along the way that, you know, you went, that was good leadership or that was bad leadership in that time? One of those defining moments. So I've got a a couple. Um, I don't think, and if we get to talk a bit more sort of academically about leadership, I can give some more, I can expound a bit, but I did not see an enormous amount of good or great leadership. Certainly good leadership, there's plenty of that. Yeah. Um, but again, you know, I was dealing at the low level in with people at the two and a half, the lieutenant commander level, perhaps commanders. And so one of the, i tell you one, one of the things that I thought was a bit of a shock for me was um, when I was in Coonawarra, we won't use any names, obviously, but uh, uh, I had to, as you know, one of the jobs you have to do is to be a friend for your divisional members when they have when they go to summary trial in front of the captain. Mm. And uh, my one of my guys, who was otherwise an excellent sailor, had got himself caught smoking marijuana and had said something in an interview which caused them to want to charge him with dealing in marijuana as well as using. So using, you know, kick in the, kick in the pants, move on, don't do it again. Dealing, you're out. This guy didn't want to go out and we looked at his, his – uh, I got advice from a, a barrister from the Reserve Legal Panel and I stood up and at my advice he, he pleaded guilty to the use charge and not guilty to the dealing charge. Three hours afterwards, in the ta- at the table, he was seen, found not guilty in, of that, and moved on. He went away. But I was called into the captain's office. I was a subalternate at the time, and he he it ripped me a new one, trying too hard to get this guy off the charge. Yes. And I was I kind of was seething as well because you know it was pretty clear what the at that time what the manual of naval law said your duty was as a friend. And I thought I'd done everything correctly, certainly in a legal sense, based on having the legal advice. But that, that uh, I, was, I was very unhappy about that. One of the yeah. things that gave me a sense that, that the leadership was not based in a great level of, of ethics, if you like. The, mm. the fact of the matter was that there was a lot strong culture back then, not so much now, I hope, but back then, that uh, you don't worry about the rules as written. These are the traditions of the Navy and this is how you should behave. And that was yeah. just wrong. So, you know, yeah. that I was unhappy with that. 
probably the nature of culture, isn't it? That um, that culture is often the way we do things around here, and in the in the absence of formal structures and reinforcement of that culture, you know, it, there is the that risk of uh, of people kind of running their own show, so to speak. Yeah, well, I think there's, and it's a very strong thing in the in the navy, as was then anyway. Not so much now, but who knows? I mean, you know, we still having cultural issues all the time in the forces. Mm. But um, yeah. you know, the idea that the skipper is this captain of the ship is is uh, is God basically, and what he says goes, yeah. regardless of all of the all of the other rules. So, and I get that, I get the need for that. But when you're a sub lieutenant, you don't make too much noise and I sort of did <laughs> that didn't go well mm-hmm. but not long after that I found myself with a new supply officer who had actually taught me at the supply school and he was a he was a he was a bit of a character as well but he was very very supportive of all of his staff but he helped me out as a young junior officer in a lot of ways so you know there was good leadership too yeah and his his name was Brian Warner. I will mention his name because he was a good guy. Yeah. Yeah. What was it about Brian that sort of helped you as somebody who was trying to find their way as a as a junior leader? Well, um, the result of one of the things that happened as a result of that uh, previous story was that I was put on an administrative thing called quarterly report. And when he got there, and we'd had a new change of captains, and he he just looked at this and he said, "What's this all about?" And I referred, I told him as I remembered it, and he said, "I'll fix that," and it went away. So, and and as as at that stage, he started doing the stuff that the previous supplier supply officer didn't do, which was to, to support, teach, yeah, encourage, challenge all all those good things that you want from a, from a good leader, which weren't yeah. there before. So, I mean, yeah. I noticed the difference. Yeah, it'd be true to say that. Whether it's the military or otherwise, that you know, no organisation is perfect, and and it is about correcting leadership or culture when it's not aligned to what it should be. Everything is personal. Yeah, and you bring yourself to whatever thing you do as a, and we'll talk about it probably again, but as a leader, it's a very personal exercise, and um, yeah. and that's why it's done so differently. Yeah. Yeah, finding your own way through that. Absolutely, we should definitely come back to that. Um, Dennis, uh, in your time in the Navy, didn't actually serve overseas in some of the conflicts that we would be aware of today, such as Timor or the Middle East, but uh, you did kind of have a Cold War sort of scenario that sounded pretty interesting. Yes, no middle though. I'm a bit dirty about that, but it doesn't matter. Yes, we were. Um, I was in the good ship Moresby as the junior supply guy and uh, – we were down uh, the bottom of Australia doing a survey and we got called back at, a, at the rush back to uh, port. Um, we got there. All of the equipment that we'd had on order for years and years and years but we'd never delivered was there. We loaded it all up. We said They said, we're going away. We're not allowed to say. We won't be saying anything until we've gone. Um, and we'll be gone for we don't know how long. So, okay, I thought this was getting a bit exciting. Uh, we weren't in any shooting wars at the time. So, yes, the ship sailed and we were told that we were going out to uh, to look at the Russian, sorry, the Soviet uh, Indian Ocean fleet who was 
tooling around below, just below Cocos Islands to look at a, a an experimental space shuttle that was yeah. being that was that was being flown for the first time. So we were there to observe and get hold of all of the information that we could uh, about that machine. We spent three weeks, I guess, because we weren't sure when they were going to launch. The Russian fleet was there with a a Kara cruiser and a couple of um, couple of destroyers and a whole lot of scientific ships. Yeah, so for three weeks we sailed around, kind of in each other's, getting in each other's way, playing rule of the road games. The Russians had everything they had pointing at us and following us the whole time, and we were lit up. And you know, we did, like, no one thought for a minute that they were going to shoot, but they were intimidating. That's for sure. Um, yeah. I think they might have sort of started to – Moresby didn't have any weapons to speak of, but it did yes. have an ice-strengthened hull. So yes. we thought with the Australian Navy's history of uh, crashing into other ships, they might uh, take that seriously and stay away. And so that's what <laughs> happened. So when we got back, that was, that was all very hush-hush at the time. But by the time we got back, it had been in the newspaper with the photos that they'd taken of the space shuttle. Our helicopter got there first, and other than wow. being shot at by some flares by the Russians, that's as hot as it got. But it was really interesting. Still fascinating, though, isn't it? I mean, and the you know we the, the idea that we would be we're involved in some kind of cold war is relevant to our current sort of military strategic scenario sure. as well. Um, well, it's playing out right now, really. I guess. Yeah. 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 Uh, Dennis, you get to a point and you decide that, you know, it's time to leave the Navy. What was the what was the catalyst for the transition and uh, what did you go to do after that? Um, I, I look, I just, I just didn't get a sense. I didn't get the sense that the Navy was managing, or interest, managing my career very well. And in retrospect, yeah. it was probably a ridiculous of me to expect that they would. One has to manage one's own career and that's a lesson that I learned. Mm-hmm. But I had gone back to university whilst I was still in uniform part-time uh, to do some computer science degree. But as soon as I got there, I recognised I could go and do a couple of other units. And having done geology after school and before the Navy at Queensland Institute of Technology, I went back in there and, and started doing it. And I just went, man, I should have just stayed with this. <laughs> <laughs> and so I stayed and finished my undergraduate degree at ANU full-time after I left the Navy, mm-hmm. got an honours degree. I studied in Antarctica. Mm-hmm. I went down there to do some research and then moved to the University of Tasmania and did another and did a PhD and did another four, three, three or four trips to, to Antarctica for that. Yeah, wow. So that was all very – I got more sea time doing that than I did in the Navy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What, um, what was the subject, just if you don't mind me asking, for the PhD? Yeah, yeah, sure. So I'm a geologist and I also did micro-paleontology, so looking at very small fossils in, in mud, basically, okay. and in mud rock. Mm-hmm. And I, I went there to look at a particular area in Antarctica called Prids Bay and to basically do an audit of all of the sedimentary processes that happen in that environment. Mm. So it was a lot of reading up because there's been a fair bit of work on it in some respects and not much in other respects. But so, yeah, I just spent uh, there three years, three years, I guess, yeah, collecting and collecting mud mm-hmm. and 
doing little experiments and I would bring them back in the winter to Hobart and work on them in the in the chemistry lab. So I did that for five years. Mm. Well, as long as as well as a you know a little bit of drinking because that's what you do when you're a student, uh, postgraduate student. Uh, it was the sedimentology and micropaleontology of Holocene Prids Bay was the name of the project. Yeah, and it resulted in some discovery and description of new order of microfossils that perhaps hadn't been seen before. Ah, uh, yes, it, that's right. Well, mm. we knew the we knew the actual organism because it's it lives it's existing today never been found in in the mud before mm. and uh, you did read my resume it's very good um <laughs> and the point the the reason that that's useful is that it, it only grows in cold water yeah. and as you know with climate change the place where the cold water is changes it moves back and forth to the mm. north and the south and so when you can find it in somewhere where they're not now you could say at some stage in the past it was cold. Yeah, right. So, you know, a useful little project, a little paper that's been, you know, what what everyone hopes for is that it gets looked at by other scientists and worked upon and done more of, and that's happened. So, you know, mm. it's a modest a modest effort, but okay. Yeah, a contribution. And that's all any PhD is, a contribution to the body of knowledge. Yeah, yeah. From the time at uh, the University of Tasmania and sort of that research, your um, career heads off in uh, in a, a number of different directions, particularly around sort of, I guess, the um, the geology and exploration space, but also into IT services. Uh, love to hear a little bit about where your career has taken you and what you've done. So when I moved across to the reserve, I, I moved into naval intelligence. Hmm. And, it, you know, you can see there's an, a use for, for people who know about supply chains in that game. Mm. So that's what I was doing. Um, I was working in the Australian Theatre Joint Intelligence Centre, and I'm using the terms of what they were then. I don't know what they're called now. That's okay. But the Joint Intelligence Centre in, in the Maritime Headquarters on the Crisis Action Support Cell. So that was really interesting work, which, you know, we'll just leave there. There was a guy who was working there who was a, an Army sergeant, and to my shame, I can't remember his name right this minute. I didn't think he'd come up. But he'd been applying for a job with an IT company in Melbourne. And they were looking for someone who knew about mining and information management. And he said, you should put your name in. I've already suggested you will. So I was interviewed for a position which was called knowledge broker. So a knowledge management job. But uh, I didn't tell them that. Uh, mining isn't the same as geology. Um, they're engineers and not, <laughs> not geologists. Yeah. Um, and, and But they did buy because the guy who uh, interviewed me had some experience with this stuff. He understood the value of an intelligence expert in the knowledge management role. So I, was, I won that job um, at BHP on the BHP account, mm -hmm. and that was a big account. I did that for a while. Eventually, I kind of switched, jumped around in the jobs there. Again, managing my own career, like I had learnt, was what I needed to do when I left the Navy. Mm. It from uh, that consulting role into sales role, because sales in those organisations, sales is they're like the they're like the pilots in the Air Force, right? They're the guys who get all the good stuff. Yeah, and then. Uh, Having done that for a while, I moved into well, I just had took did, kept doing that, but as at a global level. Mm. So 
all of the company that I worked for, all of their mining accounts were bundled into one sort of organization and I got into the top of that as the lead for strategy and new business. So, and that took that over space over the course of 11 years or so. Yeah. So it was a good, yeah. a good career, lots of different stuff to do and uh, um, made a lot of friends mm. and a lot of leadership lessons in there as well. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's an important point and, uh, and I'm, I think I've made it a couple of times on other podcasts, uh, interviews, is that, you know, the military can teach you lots about leadership but it's not the only place that you learn leadership. And um, with that extensive career, sort of not only in that but also other things you've done, what have been those key lessons for you in terms of leadership and how you turn up today as a leader? Yeah, leadership is it's a bit of a vexed topic and I'm going to take a roundabout answer on this. Lead, I know we've probably both done our uh, – I've done an MBA and that was where I learnt – how bad a leader I was, <laughs> sure. and the things I needed to do to improve, um, and that was that was well, that was my big light bulb moment, if you like. One of the things that was difficult for which I found difficult to to square was the idea that there was a, an ethical, necessarily an ethical aspect to leadership, because if you look on, at one page, one side of the argument, leadership is about getting people to do what they don't want to do and taking them to a place they don't want to go, by which you would have to say Adolf Hitler was a good leader because that's yeah. what he did. He just didn't do it the way that we think is the appropriate way to do it now hmm. and and, I'm, and I never would have agreed with that. But, but it's, you can't just say to be a good leader you need to be a good person yeah. because all of those bad leadership lessons that you've asked of me and previous people about are about people who are leading from a position that's not as ethical as we might like. Yeah. And whether or not I choose to to change my behaviour so that I am a good ethical leader. I think for me, you know, so there's a thousand things you need to know to be a good leader and we know you can list them all. None of them, they're all necessary but none of them sufficient. For me to be a good leader, I need to be empathic. Mm. And I need to be humble and I need to understand myself yeah. because unless I understand myself, I can't really help anybody else. Yeah. And leadership at the end is helping people to achieve the aims that you want to do. It's almost being effective in leadership is, uh, as you say, it's about self-awareness, but it's also knowing what the, the moral and ethical code might be. You know, you talked about Hitler being a good leader and that, you know, that often gets touted around about sort of, you know, what he achieved and and uh, and what have you. But, but nobody would say that the outcomes were ethical or morally acceptable in this day and age and, and in the, you know, the human condition. And that applies, I think, at a micro level in, in any leadership endeavour is, is uh, am I sticking to moral and ethical code which is appropriate for this sort of situation? And knowing where that comes from, how do you think you find that? So just to revisit for a short second, that leadership is a coercive activity. Mm -hmm. And because it's coercive, the tools that do the coercion are the things that help you decide, uh, I guess, or help others to decide whether you are moral and ethical. 
Mm. Now, lots of people in lots of people in the navy, fewer, but still some in the civilian world use coercion tools that aren't great. And I've done it. You know, the discussion between a leader and a, and their follower, if you like, is this is what we need to do. How are you going to help me? Mm. Is some of the some of that argument. Now, how do I how I work out? I mean, I didn't realize how bad I was as a manager, if you like, or leader, until I sat down and did my MBA and learned about the idea of being self aware and what that and how important that was. Yeah. And the way I do now see or look at my leadership journey, I guess is by knowing as much about myself as I can and trying to be as reflective as I can. And it's not always. It doesn't always work, mm. you know. But you, you've got to be open to the fact that you're looking to yourself to improve yourself. Mm. And I do that by reading it. And the best resource I've got in, in, that I can recommend to anyone who aspires to being a leader is to go to a library. And don't look at one book. In fact, read lots. Yes. Read lots of books. I don't particularly like biographies, but read biographies because they tell about people's journeys. I did love Nelson Mandela's um, Long Walk to Freedom. That was a great book. Mm. Again, you know, he was a great leader, but he did nasty things. Mm. <laughs> he, was, yeah. he was in charge of their military arm, um, mm. you know. So there you go. Mm. I would say be wary of the business literature. Most business books have one idea and spend 12 chapters talking about them mm-hmm. uh, and don't necessarily give a lot of insight. I read a lot of science books because science gives me uh, and behavioral science and, and evolutionary science and those sorts of things. gives me a sense of what makes people, how we got to where we are. Yeah. And I read a lot of philosophy because that's how our minds get to where we are. Yes. That's, the, that's the, how that gets, gets um, played out is how philosophers over the years have thought. So once you start reading those, it's hard not to start looking at yourself. Yeah. So what I heard then was, I guess, is that um, there's that self-awareness. But one of the things that comes to mind for me is is also having people around you that you know you can, that will call you out when you're off off centre. You know, they're, the, they're your kind of, uh, they're almost the people that hold the mirror up when you've got got it wrong or that you're actually perhaps off track from where you said you wanted to be. Yes, absolutely important. And more to the point that you are prepared to listen to what they say. Yeah. I've been blessed with quite a few friends who were able to do that in my, you know, my most recently in my second half of my career, I guess. But, yes, you need and, – and that's where that humility comes in. If you can stay – humble, listen to the criticism without blowing a gasket and then think about it and act on it, then you're uh, in a good place. Yeah, which comes from being present, doesn't it, and being open to that and uh, also recognising you don't have all the answers. Absolutely. That hubris of thinking that you know everything there is to know is, is what obviously trips a lot of people up. Hmm. Um, I found when I joined, when I got into the corporate world, that I actually didn't know what they were doing. I couldn't understand their decisions and all that sort of thing. That's why I went and did the MBA, only to find out, having done that, that they don't run their own lessons either in the corporate industry. Most of their decisions were actually bad based on 
what the current thought on things was. You know, they people people make the same mistakes, the same human errors everywhere. We see, and you can see that kind of thing playing out in Russia and Ukraine right now, right there. Mm. We can see the the mistakes they're making, and I'm sure they can too. But no one's learning from it, so that's kind of weird. Yeah. One of the things you've done since sort of uh, sort of that time in terms of that growing IT services and the natural resources spaces go on, I guess, as an entrepreneur and and provided uh, advice at a sort of partner strategic level. What is, what's your sense of that strategic leadership right now and uh, and what are the keys to being successful at a strategic level? Um, strategies overrated. Um, mm-hmm. We use the, the word, but when I'm talking to people about thinking how they, what they need to do about strategy, actually, let me start back a step. And I did this a lot in my corporate job. We would do strategies, strategy after strategy after strategy, as though we were making a difference to the direction of the company. Strategies are done by the board and then pushed down. And then strategic planning is undertaken to turn that strategy into, into outcomes on the ground. Mm. So most people don't do strategy, they do planning. Yeah. Some people do strategy and, you know, you can kid yourself about it, but having a strategy that uh, is sort of about motto are we going to have, what, uh, you know, to achieve something is a waste of time. So when I'm talking to people about strategy, I say, look, don't worry about strategy. You'll be driven by external influences all the time. What you actually need is a strategy of flexibility with some kind of uh, with some kind of sense of a direction that you want to go and no more than that, really. Uh, that means that you can keep looking at things as they change around you, decide to, to change the way your your business is heading, what products you're manufacturing, who you're selling stuff to, all of that sort of stuff. You need to stay flexible with that. Uh, you know, aside from the, uh, you, need, you, need to, you need to have a plan, if you like, for keeping your productive infrastructure working. But at some stage of the game, you know, you, you're going to get sideswiped by, uh, by a global financial crisis. You can't plan for that. What you can do is make sure that you've got some kind of basic no regrets process mm. to move along with. Yeah. So anyway, well, I just say don't, don't bother with strategy. Just have a plan. What are you going to do this week? What are you going to do next week? What are you going to do next year? Yes. And be prepared to look at the next year one every week. It's almost uh, can almost be paralysing sometimes when people get so wrapped up in uh, in having to have a strategy for this and that, and um, it ends up at shelfware. At the end of the day, it is actually what you do. It's the action taken at the end of the day, isn't it? That's right. That's what you do. Yeah. And um, you know, it's I can't. I will paraphrase. I can't remember who said it. The strategy is it's not a mutual suicide pact. Right. You, <laughs> you don't follow a strategy. Just you don't just follow a strategy because you've written it down. Yeah, I mean, you, you can use a, a an eraser and change it. Yeah, uh, and and if it's not working, you've got to change. Yeah, it's also got to be uh, in a place where you can actually be be on the balcony or the helicopter view of that to make sure that you're not being sucked into a yeah. strategy you invented six twelve months ago. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, you know, and, and it's it's kind of like you need – we perhaps need a bigger, a higher level abstraction of what it is to have a strategy that is we're trying to do something like this mm. and we're going to have a strategy for the next 12 months that goes here. Yeah. And we'll check how we're going, but pretty much that's where we want to go and mm. we'll just keep that. It's, it's actually the values statement. Yeah. I'm talking about, right? Yeah. yeah. Flexibility is where I think we go. And, and you know, the people that I've been talking to about about strategy, as much as there are, they get, well, once you tell them, you say, well, you know, you can write it down, you're going to put it on a shelf, you're going to ignore it, and you're going to do what you want to do. It's how it's always worked. So why don't we work out what you want to do yeah. and just work out how that fits in. Yeah. And that's where they go. Yeah. Coming back to the, you know, that person that at that middle level that's sort of emerging leader, what what would be your best advice to that person who's looking to lean in, take more responsibility around leadership every day? I'll be brave. Um, none of these jobs, none of these things that I did, I'm going to blow my own horn for a minute, I, know, I didn't plan any of it. I really didn't plan any of it. I am a inveterate jumper through Jumper off cliffs. Right. <laughs> um, there are some things I'll, I'll say, there's no way I'm going to be able to do that, so I'm not going there. But if I think I've got even a slight amount of chance of doing something and it looks interesting, I'll do it. Yeah. And, um, you know, maybe I'm not going to suggest that you just jump at every opportunity that comes to you, but mm. you need to be courageous yeah. and you need to understand that the only way you jump, the only way you climb, you don't won't be promoted to climbing, you've got to jump to another job. Yeah, is my is my experience. Mm. So I went from being a consultant to being a sales guy because that was a that was a, a jump. I mean, in the same company, and that was good. That was a jump from one to the next, and then into that to the strategic leadership stuff. Mm. You just got to be courageous, do a little bit of planning, and make sure that as as soon as you possibly can, you understand. The, the two or three things that are going to get you fired. Yes. And don't do that. Yes, <laughs> good idea. <laughs> and, and, if, and, if you're, and if you're aspiring to a leadership position, understand that the people who are working for you are going to be as more important to your success than anything you can do. Yeah. Yeah, remember it's not about you. It's a really important lesson. There's no I in team. No, no. <laughs> What uh, what have been the resources that have helped you along the way? I mean, you talked about books, actually. You talked about libraries. Is there anything else that supported you? Uh, look, I've um, whenever I don't know something, I go to unit. I go back to school, mm-hmm. and I do it that way because that's the way I like the discipline of that education place. Yes. So uh, when I decided I needed to know a bit of uh, need some to know a bit of uh, Spanish, I went back and learned how to talk speak Spanish in support of my travelling to South America a lot. Hmm. Uh, I don't speak it very well, so don't ask. Um, <laughs> when I needed when I thought it would be a useful or interesting thing to understand logic better, I went onto the uh, onto the that university that's on the internet that you can get access to, and I did a course at, with a Harvard professor for free on mm-hmm. logic. That was really yeah. interesting. Yeah, right. But 
you know, when I didn't understand the language of business, I did an MBA. Hmm. And then I did another one, the leadership piece. I did a piece of, a little piece of, it was an online arrangement, but it was a pretty, pretty meaty thing at Cornell University for executive leadership. Hmm. Um, and no one, these are never, those, those kind of business things are all about under, under, well, for me, understanding the language and understanding that, that what you're being presented with is a series of tools which you can get and, and use as you, as you see fit, as it, as it suits you, if you like, yeah. and your style. Yeah. So those are, that's it. lifelong education for me. Yeah. Well, I guess I'm appreciating, Dennis, in all that is that um, you've actually had uh, the mind of a scientist. You're always curious about why things are the way are. You've, you critically think about those things and, and you actually go and look for those sort of the body of evidence that will support that or, or that will help you inform you to, to perhaps other ways of thinking. Uh, yes, it's certainly a useful thing to have. Uh, so no, no scientific education is ever wasted. Yeah. I'm guessing that's true of every sort of education. I mean, science makes you think a certain way. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing I found out about my sort of science, actually all of them really, is there's quite a, you need quite a lot of intuition mm-hmm. because you've got to have the ideas first. Once you have that intuition to ask the right question, then you need a whole lot of discipline to to do the work that answers that question. Yeah. And, you know, I'm better with the intuition than I am with the detailed work, mm-hmm. but like, you know, I taught myself to do it, right? And yeah. uh, and now I don't have to, so it's, that's good. But <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, so it was. It's, I found it extraordinary. I find it very useful to be to be able to bring a scientific approach to to problem solving. Yeah, but I don't think it's that special. But no. you know, yeah, but you don't. But I mean, in terms of, I mean, might leave it around here. But it's like intuition. It's like you've actually. You've, it's a learned skill. You got to practice it. You. It's about not jumping into assumptions and conclusions all the time, but being prepared to. Go deeper, ask the questions to go one more level than what's being presented to you sometimes, isn't it? Well, so there's, there's so many pieces to this discussion, mm. to that yeah. question. Yeah. Firstly, intuition is that thousand flowers blooming story, right? Yeah. Allow the, allow the ideas, have all the ideas, and, but make sure that you've got a way to get rid of this rubbish, get rid mm. of the idiot stuff, right? Yeah. So you need a goat separator. If you like separate right. the sheep from the goats, right? Um, so, so I think that's the important thing is mm. to to have certainly your intuition builds on the stuff you already know. Mm. So I go back to I've had all of that all of that education. I've got all of the knowledge that I've learned over the years and in different places, and I've got all of these different experiences in lots of different realms, mm. and they help me to bring together things that 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 help to generate new ideas. And then once you've got the ideas, you've just got to just got to kick forward and try to work out how to move it forward. Yeah. I mean, one of the things you would have noticed, I guess, the, the one of the things I recently did that I was most proud of, actually, or very proud of, was this paper that I wrote with my mate Colin Farrelly and and uh, and Harrison Schmidt. Harrison Schmidt, I don't know him. He was the he was an astronaut who went to the moon on Apollo seventeen. 
as a geologist. And uh, we got together. I saw him talking in a pub, so I went and talked to him in Melbourne, you know, mm-hmm. and we put together an idea and passed it up to BHP that sometime in the future there will be extraterrestrial mining. Mm-hmm. And if BHP, if you want your logo on the side mm-hmm. of those vehicles, then you've got to start thinking about it now. The person I, I, I pitched that to at BHP was Megan Clark. She's now the director of the Australian Space Agency, and right. she's doing the story. She's telling that story now without giving the credit, but that's all right. <laughs> Make sure it happens. So I thought that was, and we did a long, big piece of work and put in a bid to NASA to when they were looking to go to Mars and mm. they needed to go to the moon first and yeah. go to Mars. And that's still playing out, but we put together a, a fairly broad-scaped response to their broad area announcement, looking for, you know, technologies. And uh, it, I don't think they could get their head around it because they gave all the money to people who are making little rocket motors. So. Sure. <laughs> but that paper, if you have a look at that, yeah. it was a, a nice little piece of work. We'll make sure we put a link in the uh, show notes to that particular paper. Dennis, fascinating conversation. Thank you, Mark. It's been a great pleasure. want to finish up with some rapid-fire questions which I ask all my guests and... Uh, Holy dooly. Yeah. Can you up for that? Yeah, yeah. Hit me. Yeah, okay. All right. So fill in the blank. Leadership is blank. Vexed. Mm-hmm. Difficult. A magnificent journey. Great fun. You love libraries, but what's your go-to leadership book if you had to pick one? Well, the one that I showed you the other day called It's Your Ship, mm-hmm. who was, which was written by I Can't Remember. David Abishoff. It's over behind me, yeah. but it's a great, yes, it's a great leadership story couched in an environment that we both know very well. That's it. And that guy is, uh, I don't know what he's doing now, but he's hes an enlightened man. Hmm. Yeah. David Abishoff, it's your ship. Great book. Actually, Michael Abishoff, sorry, my mistake. So I wish I'd known blank earlier in my career. I wish I'd known myself. Yeah. That's the answer. Mm, absolutely. I can rec- I resonate with that a lot. You get a call from a team member, crisis just erupted in your company team. What are your first words to that person? Remember, because they will have learnt this because I'd have told them about it, remember your OODA loop. Right. Stop. Observe. Mm. Then you put out the fire. Then make sure it doesn't get worse while you're looking at other stuff, and then improve the system that caused whatever crisis there was in the first place. Yeah, awesome. And the last question, the go-to quote on leadership that has had maybe the most influence on your leadership or your life. Well, I'm going to paraphrase it because I don't have it right in front of me, but it's an Einstein quote mm-hmm. that talks to the job of a leader is to reduce complexity to simplicity mm-hmm. and use that for the further discussions about what things have to happen. But I'll say as an adjunct to that, to be able to do that, you need to understand the complexity Mm. at fairly deep level in order to make sure when you make it simple that you don't miss important things. Yeah, yeah. And it's a challenge we have every day, isn't it, for everybody, wherever you are. We live in a complex world and, yeah, we need to be able to work out what that next step is and how to break it down into sort of bite-sized chunks. 
Yeah, and there's so many people have talked about that over the years. Mm. It, it's, it's just what you said, bite-sized chunks. Mm. First, do this one, of the, you know, eat the elephant one bite at a time. Yeah, yeah. Well, Dennis, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Really have appreciated your time and, and some of those insights. And I've actually got my attention around intuition, and I think there's probably more to say about that somewhere else in the future. Yeah, well, it's been a great pleasure to be here, Martin, not as scary as I thought. Yeah, intuition, man. If you it comes to you, yeah, you need to work out how to make it work. Yeah, awesome. That intuition piece. Awesome. Thanks again. All right, no problem. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Frontline to Boardroom. So grateful that you could be with us. For more on how you can step up to leadership every day, be sure to visit us at martinbrooker.com where you can subscribe to the show to be notified every time an episode drops. And if you found value in this episode, we'd love it if you'd share it with a friend. Looking forward to being here with you next week. And remember, sometimes you need to drive it like you stole it.